You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The National Museum of the American Latina will be built in the coming years to celebrate the expansive and diverse histories, cultures, and contributions of Latino communities. In this episode, Eduardo Diaz, Interim Director of the Plan Museum and current director of the Smithsonian Latino Center, joins Washington Post Live to talk about the importance of recognizing this long history and how the past shapes our present in our conversations marking Hispanic Heritage Month. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelis Hernandez, reporter for the Washington Post. Joining me today is Eduardo Diaz, director of the Smithsonian Latino Center, and he's also the interim director of the forthcoming planned National Museum of the American Latino. Welcome, Senor Diaz. Thank you very much, Alice. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, I wanted to start, it being Hispanic Heritage Month, I wanted to start with some of your personal reflections. Um, what parts of your heritage are you most proud of, and what do you wish people had more awareness about in terms of that heritage? I'm a product of the Chicano movement. So when I entered college in 1968 at San Diego State, uh, it was at the apex, right, the Chicano movement. And at that time, there was a real strong um, motivation to get connected with indigenous roots versus necessarily Spanish roots. And so that sort of started me on this uh, long process of self-discovery. You know, I knew that I was an indigenous person. I knew I had indigenous blood, but I always saw indigeneity through a Latino lens versus a, a, an indigenous lens. And so, you know, Ancestry.com, I, I, I did it. And lo and behold, 50% uh, Mexican indigenous. And based on my where my people are from, I'm probably Chichimeca. There was a large uh, Indian nation called La Gran Chichimeca in that part of Mexico. And so I suppose that's what 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 it is. And I've been now more interested in learning more. And actually, upon retirement, which is not too far away from now, uh, I plan on learning Nahuatl, which is the or at least basic Nahuatl, which is the language of the Aztecs and also the Chichimeca and those folks that live there. And it's still very much spoken now. Uh, so I'm going to do the best I can to learn uh, what I can in the time that I have available before I enter the world of Mictlan which is the inframundo, the world of the afterlife of the Nahuatl-speaking cultures. It's not exactly, you know, your typical retirement retirement plan, but, um, you know, I have always wanted to learn more about that indigenous past, which is predominates right within me. And so it's, uh, it's a lifelong pursuit, you might say. Well, as you reflect on your own story, right, I, I wonder if we can pivot towards, you know, our stories, right? And what, what, what do you think is most important to understand about the histories of indigeneity and colonialism that runs through the Americas? I think it's critically important. It, it's, you know, it's not like when the Europeans first came to the American continent that this was sort of an empty space. No, it was well inhabited, very advanced civilizations, uh, lots of people, you know, um, and, you know, there something happened and, you know, we can go into a lot of Interesting details of uh, the invasion and the conquest in the colonial period. Uh, but, you know, we were here, indigenous people have been here since the millennium. And so I do think it's important to, to go back and always remember that that is the case. 
And even though there has been a lot of destruction, a lot of death, uh, the erasure of cultures, um, erasure of histories, uh, erasure of languages, that I think it's always important uh, to go back now more than ever. You know, the, the past shapes the present and, and helps us envision um, the future. You know, we're taking on a, an interesting project here at the Smithsonian entitled The Other Slavery, which really looks at um, the, uh, so what I will call the charter generation of racialized uh, enslavement practices here in what is now known as the United States. This is a historical chapter that's not been looked at much because when we think of slavery, we think of a, a, a black white you know, narrative, right? But indigenous slavery um, or Indian slavery, Indian bondage predates uh, African slavery and we've not taken, I think, a hard enough look at it. So uh, we're putting together a program that actually starts on September the 24th that we're gonna take an in-depth look at at, at, at at this particular history. And I raise it because we're talking about indigenous people who were the victims of enslavement practices. Well, yeah, so this is an upcoming virtual symposium, if I'm correct. correct, right? And just for our audience, it's called The Other Slavery. Well, in talking about these issues, you know, what do you want people to take away from these these sessions, this symposium about the legacy of colorism in, you know, the broader Latino community? Sure. You know, it's 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 interesting. It's a very interesting question. You know, the, the issue of colorism, of course, has come up and there's a direct link to slavery, obviously. Um, you know, I was thinking, you know, when all the uproar occurred with the movie Washington Heights, right, when people were criticizing the film for not putting uh, or placing uh, Afro-Latinas and Afro-Latinos in principal roles within the film, or enough of them, it, it did raise this issue. And we have to understand that during the colonial period in, in Mexico and other parts of Latin America, the, the Spanish may have been the first to impose a system of what we would now recognize as Indian, of I'm sorry, racial profiling. And, you know, it was a caste system, Sistema de Castas. It was a caste system where, um, you know, lighter skinned people were at the top of the pyramid and people that were darker skinned uh, were at the bottom or, 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 you know, inhabited the lower rungs. Understand that the Spaniards had a real urge to get a, a grip on this demographic, dynamic demographic explosion that their invasion and that their colonialism uh, unleashed in the Americas. Spaniards, you know, coupled with uh, native people Mestizo, me, right? For example, Spaniards coupled with African slaves, mulatos, right? Um, Asian slaves were brought in because let's remember the Spaniards went and established a colony in the Philippines, which was a major slaving port that the Portuguese were also very involved with. And those folks came over, slaves came over from Asia to Mexico. So all of that melange, all of that mixing took place because Mestizos were then marrying mulatos and their offspring were married. And just, you know what I mean? And the Spaniards were very much intent on maintaining social, political, and economic order that benefited the colonial state. And so that led to a diminishment in the importance and the appreciation of the cultures of people of color. And we see this today, you know, where, for example, if you wanted to do better, you, you wanted to mate with somebody that was lighter skinned than you because you wanted to mejorar la raza, right? You wanted to better the race. Right, you didn't want to marry below you because that would, no, that would doom, that would doom things, that would doom your future and that of your children. So we still have that concept of mejorar la raza still sort of circulating within our communities. 
know, pelo malo is another example, bad hair. Bad hair refers to the, the hair of African-descended people, right? That's not the kind of hair you want. You want straight hair, right? And, and you know, there's, there are Spanish language versions of the N-word, you know, and very disparaging terms that we use for people, um, those of indigenous uh, physiognomics, right? Those people, who, people the way people assess uh, character based on outward appearances only. So that's still, I'm sad to say, is a legacy that still li lives on with our community. Um, but I'm also happy to say, on the other hand, that the Latino Center and the National Museum of the American Latino will examine this history of colorism. In fact, we're about to begin a project which is going to be, I think, you know, very thorough and very painful. But I think we have to do this now. We cannot sit back, especially in the times that we're living on, living in, so, sorry, to, to not address this issue of colorism within our community because it's real, it's historic, it's lasting, and it's present. And, you know, we have to deal with it, period. No, no, I'm I, I totally relate. My family is of Puerto Rican heritage. My parents are, are from the island themselves. And, you know, phrases like mejorar la raza and pelo malo were something that I heard throughout my childhood. And I'm, you know, a millennial, right? Yeah, not, not, <laughs> like, you know, no, es una tusa, right? That's another disparaging word for somebody of African descent in Puerto Rico. So it's just, it's insidious, right? And and it's there's roots to that. And I think we need, and the casta system, in my view, is one of those roots that we need to look at very carefully in the way in which those racial constructs occurred within our communities. Well, and, and speaking, you know, of these legacies that we've inherited through through colonialism, I want to shift a little bit to U.S. right and the history of or the notion, I should say, of manifest destiny underpinning the U.S.-Mexico War. I mean, I I live in San Antonio, a city that you're very familiar with, and here a few months ago, the lieutenant governor of Texas stopped a talk at a museum about a book called "Forget the Alamo," in which the authors were going to speak, and it's a it's a book that talks about um, you know, sort of the mythology around the Alamo, but also about the impact that that mythology had on Mexican Americans here in Texas and, and the way that they viewed themselves. So my question to you is, in terms of the notion or the enduring impact of, you know, the notion of manifest destiny, how is that shaped, do you think, the boundaries of our country and our idea of Latinidad? Well, the, the notion of manifest destiny is, 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 is a white supremacist notion, right? It's, it's the notion that God gave white folks, you know, the the right to explore these uh, these territories, right, and to dominate the people who lived in those territories. Primarily, in this particular case, Mexicans and indigenous peoples, and so it was a very dangerous doctrine, but nonetheless, obviously, enacted in in in, in a warlike manner, leading to, as you said, the Mexican-American War, which occurred between 1826 and. 18, I'm sorry, 1846 and 1848, primarily. And so you have this notion of people also wanting to establish Texas as a slave state. So let, here again, you know, the narrative of slavery enters into the conversation, right? The South wanted to expand its territory, right? And, you know, so Texas became sort of a plum, if you will, in, in, in that sort of uh, goal. And, you know, there's these lasting notions of, this, of the black legend, the Spanish black legends that, you know, Mexican people were mongrels. Uh, we were somehow, you know, again, inferior, uh, not human enough, incapable of self-government. I mean, if you read some of the Senate testimony, right, right after the, the end of the, of the Mexican-American War, 
and efforts to incorporate, let's say, New Mexico, for example, or Texas, New Mexico in particular, as a state. Oh my God, some of the Senate testimony is brutal. I mean, it is ugly. I mean, words like mongrel and and you know just in all kinds of references to our inferiority status as, as Mexican people as a mixed race. You know, let's let's be real. Let's be honest about what that was all about. This is about territorial expansion, right? And it was about a, a supremacist view of, of who should, you know, live in this country. And, and who should, you know, after the Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in April of, of 1848, nearly half of Mexico became the United States. All those thousands of Mexicans with a stroke of a pen all of a sudden became U.S. citizens, but they spoke no English, right? They didn't know much about the United States. And then, you know, well, the history is long, long, and we can talk about that's a yeah. little, that's a subject for a whole no, no, no. I mean I can tell that you and I can talk about this for hours I'm a huge sure. US Latino history like sure. just nerd uh, my first classes in college uh, just transformed my life but I'm going to try to bring it to the now right well, what we can learn and what we can draw from these chapters sure. of in history well like how do we make sense right I just came from the border in Del Rio uh, reporting on this situation with with migration but how do these chapters in history help us make sense of the present times in which we're living and um, you know sort of some of the continued anti-immigrant sentiment that we see in American political discourse right you know it's I think it's still this notion that uh, people of color in this country often they're still othered you know we're the other right um, you know like Sometimes you may have you may have experiences yourself. Puerto Ricans experience it a lot. You know, they're maybe they're Spanish. You know, their English is accented, and they will say, "Well, where are you really from?" No, well, I'm a U.S. citizen. I know, but where are you really from? Right? And so it's still this sort of othering of our of our community that occurs. And so at the border, it's you know there was a line drawn after the war, and where there was no line before because there was such fluidity. Uh, as you know, um, before before the war, and even after the war up to a certain period, and then things got militarized. If you go to El Paso or Del Rio or any of the places that you've uh, visited, at least you'll know how militarized, in fact, it really is. And so it's still this notion of people coming across the border or trying to come across the border and still yet viewing them as the other and not desirable, not deserving of being in this country. That kind of attitude shapes immigration policy, unfortunately, and also the enforcement of those laws and those policies. And we see it even today, right? What's going on with the Haitian immigrants, primarily in the Del Rio area, in particular, um, Del Rio is Ciudad de Cunha. So it, it, it's painful. It's painful to see. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's it, it's just a, a the legacy of that of that history of division. And the history of othering and and the, the uh, I don't know, not wanting quote unquote undesirable peoples to come and benefit from living in this country, or that this notion that somehow these people are deficits right to the country, they don't add anything, they're not prepared to add to the economy, they're not prepared to add, prepared to add to social betterment or cultural dynamism. Quite the contrary, and we know that. Well, and on this issue of otherizing, right, we, we know now, uh, or at least we knew, and it's been confirmed by the census that, you know, Latinos increase by leaps and bounds in terms of uh, number here in the country, but not because of immigration, because most Latinos in this country now, or, or large majority, are native born like me and you. 
right. I, I mean, how, how do we sort of move away from Latino growth as being just a story of, of immigration to one that's a part of the official canon of this country? I don't know. I just think we need to keep on reminding people that what, 60, I haven't seen the latest Pew, statistics, Pew research statistics, but the last time I looked, it was 65% of Latinos and Latinos are native born, as you say, 35% are immigrants. So, you know, and it's funny, every time you say Latino the, to some people, uh, immediately the word immigrant comes up right after, right? You must be an immigrant. Um, and that's not really the case at, at all. We have been here in this country before there was even this country, right? We have made significant monumental contributions to nation building and shaping national culture over so many, so many years. We're here now, and as you noted, we're one of the fastest growing population segments in the country. And we continue to add to the economy, to social betterment, to cultural dynamism and so forth. And we're gonna be here for a long time to come and in greater numbers. So I think it's really important for people, you know, who are, and that's part of the reason we're doing the museum and part of the reason we're opening the gallery, the Molina Family Latino Gallery in American History is to sort of share these stories and, and share with the general visitor of the museums who, a little bit about who we are, how long we've been here, what we've done, what we've brought to this country, and what we are prepared to continue to give back to this country and how, we're, how we are preparing ourselves to share even, uh, even more about with, with who we are, about who we are, and, and, and continue to bring a lot to the table. So I don't know, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's, um, it's like a continuing effort, you know, it's nonstop. You know, we have to continue to, to help people understand the true nature of who we are as a people. And I should say peoples, because we're a very diverse group of people, as you well know, you're Puerto Rican, I'm Chicano. You know, we have so many countries of origin. We have so many communities of residents in this throughout this land and you know we need to understand that hey you may be sitting next to a latino right now and don't know it maybe you want to learn about who they are what they do right and how you are actually interconnected as an american uh resident right well eduardo that's why the smithsonian latino center exists right and essentially why you're you're working on this project to bring this museum and in next year right it's 25 years for the smithsonian latino center celebrating years yeah there was a there was a report in 1994 called willful neglect and it was a very damning report that was commissioned by the smithsonian itself and you have to hand it to the institution for you know uh doing it right commissioning the report which revealed that there was so little done. I mean, the name says it all, Wilco McGlade. And so the Smithsonian said, well, that's uh, not a good report. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? And so the next year, and years following 1997, uh, a couple years after, three years after, the Latino Center was, was established. And our role really is to ensure Latino presence within the institution, which is a monumental task because we're talking about 19 museums, soon to be 21 museums, nine research centers, a national zoo, a major festival on the mall, a recording label, et cetera. So, you know, that's that's a lot of territory to cover, a lot of content to explore, to research, to do exhibitions around, to collect about, uh, to, to program educational and public programs, um, to publish and so forth, and to also use the digital uh, world as a way to disseminate um, this information and this experience. You know, 
the Smithsonian itself is 175 years old, and you know the mission remains the same after 175 years, and that's very simply the, an institution to increase uh, and the increase in diffusion of knowledge. Pretty simple. And so, following in that, um, following up and executing that mission is our task. And so, this gallery that we're we're building at the National Museum of American History and the museum that will follow later are all about that: the increase and diffusion of knowledge and examining the American experience through a Latino lens, right? Yeah, American I, I history, go ahead. But for, forgive me, no, I, I just like, point of personal privilege, one of the things that I find, you said, you know, Latinos are diverse, we have so many different kinds of history, I'm Puerto Rican, you're Chicano, like, how do you thread that all together into a museum and, and sort of weave through principal narratives? Like I'm thinking the, you know, the Museum of, of African-American history and, and slavery sort of being this central theme, right? What's the central theme of the American Latino? I think that's to be determined. I would say just off the top of my head, it could be migration and immigration. It could be movement, right? That could be, that could shape it. You know, obviously slavery is a, is a narrative because we're, who knows? I mean, given my background, my ethnic background, I could have come from enslaved people myself, right, in Mexico, right? But, you know, I'll just leave that, you know, to more his, more research I have to do. But but uh, to your point, you know, how do we include everyone's story? I'll tell you, this first exhibition that we're putting in the Molina Gallery is entitled Presente, a Latino History of the United States. And we take it all the way from indigenous periods all the way through to contemporary. And we highlight critical episodes, like the one we were talking about earlier, the U.S.-Mexico War. We also talk about another period, which is near and dear to your heart, the Spanish-American War of 1898, and where the United States really exerts its, its imperial uh, vision and assumes control over Puerto Rico. And of course, Puerto Rico continues to be a possession of the United States, the liberation of Cuba. The Philippines were also taken as, as a sort of a prize as well. Uh, in that war that was fought between Spain and the United States. So we take on major episodes. You know, we look at the issue of immigration. One of the one of the most exciting uh, objects in the exhibition is a balsa, a Cuban raft, right? This is these are, the, these are these ramshackle rafts that were put together with styrofoam and duct tape and God only knows what else uh, that uh, Cuban refugees got in and and quote unquote sailed to Florida and made it here. And so it's a very dramatic piece. It's very moving because you understand in just that one object, what these folks went through to leave what they was an undesirable situation in Cuba and make their way to the United States. And so we're using objects and stories to really cover a broad swath of Latino history. Are we gonna miss some chapters? Absolutely. There's just no way within 4,500 square feet. I mean, it's hard enough to do that in a big museum, right? Like you mentioned, African American history and culture. But can you imagine trying to do that in a 4,500 square foot space? Wow. But we're doing the best we can. Subsequent exhibitions, we're going to go into deeper dives and, and specific uh, subject matter. Like the next exhibition, we'll really look at Latino youth movements, right? The Chicano movement, the Young Lords, uh, efforts in, let's say, Miami, for example, in their battle against English only laws and things of that nature. So. And these up subsequent exhibitions, and when the museum is open, we'll have an opportunity to do these really deeper dives into specific subject areas, which I think will be a, a welcome and fascinating uh, process. 
Well, so I'm actually very familiar with the Smithsonian Latino Center. I actually presented one of my research uh, papers that I did for the U.S. Latino Studies class at the University of Maryland. And I know that part of how you're able to do your work is the, the pedagogy that's being built by ethnic studies programs across the country at a university level, right? But I'm curious about the K through 12 level. And, you know, are Latino or the history of Latino communities, excuse me, being taught in schools the way they should be? And why is that important? No, it's absolutely not. I mean, it goes back to this notion. If you actually knew us, knew about us, knew about what our histories are, knew about what contributions we've made to this country, uh, know a little bit about our contemporary life, you might actually like us. You might actually welcome us. You might actually, you know, want to work with us and, and, and live with among us and so forth, or live with us, if you will. And so, you know, I, I that starts early on within the educational system. I mean, we have a great education program at the Latino Center, great staff who are working with a program that's, um, um, that is virtual, that supplies curriculum materials to uh, teachers who teach at, I think at the elementary grade school level, right? Because um, they, 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 they're struggling for material and, and curriculum-based uh, information to use with their students. You know, for example, in Georgia, you know, around the Atlanta area, where you see this explosion, and the New South is a real, the Latino New South is real, right? Charlotte, Atlanta, Memphis, you know, I can go Birmingham. You know, all of a sudden, teachers are ha are having seen this influx of Latino students, and they're looking for materials, teaching materials that they can use to engage these new students who are coming into their third, fourth, or fifth grade classrooms. And they're at a loss. So I think the Smithsonian, let's recognize that the Smithsonian is .edu. Now we're not .com. Well, there's a .com, but that's the, the, the Smithsonian Magazine and, and some of our other commercial ventures. But it's basically a .edu. We're an educational institution. And we're the nation's museum. So I think we have a responsibility to the educational sector, right? To provide information and materials that teachers can use, that parents can use, to better educate today's youth. So we're running out of time, Eduardo, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to ask you this question. Uh, you know, some of my friends call this uh, his, his pandering heritage month, right? And disparage, uh, you know, what this time is supposed to be. But I wonder, you know, how can this month be a time to reflect on the contributions of Latinos, you know, sort of beyond the scripted platitudes? And how can we sustain that throughout the entire year? Because um, I think we're pretty awesome every yeah, outside you know, of September and October. You know, sometimes I call Hispanic, Hispanic Hysteria Month. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's it, honestly, sometimes it's almost the bane of my existence. But, um, you know, because I say, like, people will say, well, Hey, Eduardo, what's the Latino Center doing for Hispanic Heritage Month? And I say, buddy, every month is Hispanic Heritage Month for me. So I think, you know, that's the kind of way I see it. You know, we have to make Hispanic Heritage Month a 12-month proposition rather than a one-month proposition. You know, again, we are foundational. Our role is foundational in this country. It has been for a long, long time. It is today and it will be tomorrow. And there's so much more that we need to learn even about our own selves, right? Um, we need 
I'm a Chicano. I, I know a lot about Puerto Rican history or Cuban history or the Cuban community, the Dominican community, Central America. I live in a Central American-dominated neighborhood here in Washington, D.C., and Columbia Heights. So I've come to learn, and I'm always open. So I think this is, you know, to learning more. And and, uh, and so I think it's um, I think it's a lifelong proposition, and and we should always be celebrating uh, Latino contributions to our country's history and culture on a daily basis. And we should all be wanting to learn more, befriend Latinos and Latinas to learn about their lives and their struggles and their triumphs and their accomplishments. And so I think that makes for a better societal fabric, um, you know, now and, and in the future. And I'd like to think that the Smithsonian can play a big role in that, in that respect. Well, so we're running out of time, and I, I wanted to ask you one question because we came up on the issues of, or the notion of worthiness and acceptance. Is having a Latino museum about us being accepted into the majority culture, or, or, or what, what, what is it? What is, the, what is it? I, I think so. You know, I read an interesting book um, by Arlene Davila, who's a scholar at uh, NYU, New York University, who was did a chapter in a book called uh, Oh my gosh, I forgot the name of the book. Oh, it's Culture Works, I think it is. And in one of the chapters, she takes on the issue, the notion at that time, very nascent, you know, the establishment of the National Museum of the American Latino, a commission had just been established in, I want to say 2008, 2009. And she boiled it down very succinctly, which is, this is really about the politics of value and worth, right? And so, will the U.S. Congress eventually view the Latino community as being valuable enough, as being worthy enough to have its own museum, right? To have our own museum. And as you know, Congress, as you as was pointed out uh, in the intro to this program, did pass a bill in December of last year, 2020, to establish uh, the National Museum of the American Latino. So I guess one could say Congress finally realized that the Latino community was worthy enough and valuable enough to move this project uh, forward. I would like to think that that attitude still persists. And, you know, Congress is still on the hook for some of the money to support the planning, design, and construction of this new museum. So if they do that, or when they do that, Congress acts in that regard to appropriate uh, their 50-50, their 50% of the deal, we'll know whether or not we are worthy enough and, uh, and valuable enough to be able to sustain this great enterprise? I think the answer will be yes. Well, thank you for that. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Eduardo Diaz, uh, for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure um, to be with thanks, you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us today on Friday, October 1st at 11.30 a.m. Join my colleague Mariana Sotomayor for her conversation with Texas Congresswoman Veronica Escobar as part of our continuing conversations marking Hispanic Heritage Month. Go to WashingtonPost.Live.com to register for upcoming programs. I'm Marilisa Hernandez, and thank you for taking your time and watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.